So we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, starting at verse 13 today, is one of my favorite stories from the New Testament. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 13. And when you found that, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you are able, I'll read this passage for us. So Matthew writes this. Now when Jesus heard this, this is of the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us one more time quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask now that you would illumine the preaching of your word. Open our, high, our eyes and our hearts um, to what it is that you want to speak to us today. You've promised in your word that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. On June 1st, 1832, general and much-loved Napoleonic war hero Jean-Maximilien Lamarck died as a result of a cholera outbreak that claimed the lives of almost 20,000 people in Paris. Now, the social and economic climate in Paris at that time was already strained as a result of failed harvests, food shortages, and an ever-widening disparity between working-class poor and the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie. But with the political instability and dissatisfaction also at an all-time high, insurrectionists decided to use the funeral of General Lamarck four days later as a catalyst to stir national pride as well as to try to take power, overthrow the government. Now, Apparently, Victor Hugo was in Paris at this time when this revolution was happening, later known as the June Rebellion or the Paris Uprising of 1832 which is what inspired his writing of the classic novel, then musical, then film Les Miserables. Uh, And in that story, you might know there's this uh, kind of exciting, catalytic um, leader, revolutionary leader named Enjolras, who who gathers together this 30,000 strong, or or, sorry, 3,000, I shouldn't overstate it, 3,000 strong people's revolt, um, which actually took control of much of the central and eastern parts of Paris. But as maybe if you know the story, that the rebellion actually only lasted two days before it was put down. 
uh, apparently, and apparently it's only one of numerous uh, revolutions and uprisings that took place in Paris. I mean, it's funny, uh, a lot of times people will say they love learning about French Revolution. You almost need to ask them which one. Uh, I mean, there's the French Revolution proper, 1789, the storming of the Bastille, but apparently there's numerous other revolutions and uprisings as well. Uh, Paris, it seems, uh, was a hotbed of political instability and revolutionary ideology. And I bring it up as we continue in our teaching series this morning through Matthew's Gospel entitled Kingdom Come, because the similarities between the socio-political climate in Paris in 1832 and Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 in our passage today, somewhere around 8032, they're almost identical. And, and, I'll, and I'll get into how they're so similar as we go along here, but something in particular that, that stands out to me and that I want to focus our time around this morning in this passage is that although Jesus, like that revolutionary leader, Enjolras, he, he's the perfect charismatic revolutionary figure to lead a rebellion against Roman tyranny and oppression, what quickly becomes very obvious and plain is that Jesus has come to lead a revolution that's very different than anyone expects. Which is something I think is important to remind ourselves of still today. For while the majority of us know nothing of the hunger and poverty and, and political oppression that led to revolution in Jesus' day, or France in the 1700s and 1800s for that matter, but what I think we all know very well is the hunger, the dissatisfaction in life that leaves every single one of us looking for a hero who will lead us to freedom. Someone or something that will help us finally break free from the disappointment, the loneliness, the heartache, and satisfy the deepest desires and cravings of our hearts, which if you think about it, those are some of the same kind of core desires at the heart of most of the historical revolutions that we read about in our history books. These core desires for something leading people to reach for more than what they're currently experiencing. And, and we all do this. We all seek to fill that role of hero or savior with all kinds of different things. But as the famous, well, I don't know if it's famous, but Tyler Durden once said, how's that working out for you? All the things that you're currently latching on to to try to fill that role, how's that working out? Well, in order that we might see in our passage, but I pray actually experience personally the kind of fullness and freedom in life that Jesus actually came to bring and can give, I want to look at just two things from our passage today. I want to show you miracles as signposts and then ministers of the miracle. Just these two things, miracles as signposts and ministers of the miracle. So if you closed your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you're reading on today, if you could Open that again to our passage, Matthew 14, beginning at verse 13. Follow along with me as we look together at Jesus' unexpected revolution. Okay, so let's look first of all at miracles as signposts. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. So just to give you some context, again, if you weren't with us last week or you've just forgotten from last week, um, Jesus' cousin... John the Baptist had just been beheaded by Herod Antipas, the tetrarch over the regions of Galilee and Perea, where Jesus and John did the majority of their preaching and teaching. And if you remember or you know anything about John the Baptist, you know that he too was something of a revolutionary leader, um, calling out Herod and the religious rulers of his day for their hypocrisy and, and gathering large crowds around his kingdom cause. 
But when John is beheaded, his disciples, they come and tell Jesus what's happened. Um, it leads to the beginning of our passage here. And then you read this in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Which, when you read that, sounds like retreat. It sounds like escape, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's heard this horrible thing. John's being beheaded, and then Jesus is just like, man, we've got to get out of here pronto. This, this is not good here. It's not safe to minister. Let's, let's get out of this region where Herod is ruling. And there's maybe some truth to that, except that when we learn from Luke's gospel that the desolate place Jesus goes to in a boat with his disciples is Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the hill country in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee where, as Tim Keller puts it, all the freedom fighters and guerrilla warriors were holed up and hiding out. He goes on, he says, this was the center of the zealot movement, and the zealots stood for the violent overthrow of Roman rule. This means Jesus basically went to Paris. Uh, That's where he went. Um, And then, of course, as we read on, the second half of verse 13 says, when those crowds, those ruffians and zealots hear that Jesus is there, they come out in crowds together around him. So now, do you see it? Right now, what, what looked like escape, what looked like retreating, starts to look very strategic and coordinated. John's revolution had come, his, his, his movement had been cut short, but now Jesus, he's the next and best candidate to kind of pick up the charge with John's funeral, like Lamarck, kind of being this catalyst for their revolutionary zeal. But now this is where things really kind of explode and go off the rails because people had already been hearing reports about Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth performing miraculous signs and wonders Um, And and like John the Baptist before him, he's arguing, confounding the scribes and Pharisees. He's pushing back against the aristocracy of his day. But now, when they see that Jesus can not only gather crowds, as John did, but he can also feed everybody and feed everyone with, like, next to nothing. Miraculously, everyone in the crowd is satisfied. Now they're convinced Jesus is the man. This is the guy we need. He's the best candidate possible, not just to lead our revolution, but to be our new king. And John's account of this same story tells us Jesus knew that, 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 that all of a sudden they were going to, it says, take Jesus and make him their king by force. So that's why Jesus is like, we need to get out of here. He puts the disciples in a boat, sends them away, sends the crowd away. Which, of course, is ironic because as God of the universe, as the one by whom and for whom all things had been made, Jesus was already their king. I mean, they didn't going to make him anything. But he understands what they mean by king. That they've got this idea of this kind of warrior king who's going to come in, I guess, I don't know, lightning bolts shooting out of his eyes. That's the idea that they have of this king, this revolutionary hero who's going to bring them freedom. So that's why Jesus, he's like, I need to shut this down. We need to get out of here. This, this is... This is not the kind of revolution I've come to bring. But although the feeding of the 5,000 is actually the only miracle aside from the resurrection that's in all four Gospels, it's only John's Gospel that goes on to explain Jesus' purpose for performing this miracle. Matthew kind of hints at it in his Gospel, but John really lays it out for us. So we're going to kind of dip into John a little bit to get a fuller picture of what's going on here. And as I've been reminding over the last few weeks, John tells us plainly in his gospel that he wrote down all the things Jesus taught and his miracles, so, he says, so that you may believe. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. That's, that's generally speaking what he's doing. But as it relates to this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 men and their families in particular, John tells us that the next day, so the following day after he did this, uh, the crowds find out where Jesus has gone to, and they come seeking him, seeking him for more bread, seeking him likely for instructions. Okay, look, what's our next move? Where do we go from here? But in response, Jesus tells them this. This is John 6. He says, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he says this, Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So he's, he's explaining there's a different purpose to what was going on. Now the people are intrigued by this, and they say, well, What must we be doing to do the works of God? Essentially asking Jesus, okay, like how do we, what do we need to do to get that, that bread that endures to eternal life? To which Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Adding, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, to which the people reply, sir, give us this bread always. You ever, ever showed up somewhere uh, for something and then being disappointed initially because it wasn't what you were expecting, only to have your expectations then exceeded. It ended up actually being like better than what you initially had hoped you were showing up for. I think that's exactly what's happening here as the people show up looking for both their next day's filling as well as the debrief of Jesus' military strategy. They're dissatisfied initially when Jesus doesn't want to provide either of those things. But in pointing to the purpose behind his miraculous feeding, Jesus promises to provide what would actually satisfy them, something so much better than what they were seeking him for, this, this bread that endures to eternal life, bread that Jesus later says will satisfy their hunger forever. And when they hear about that, they're like, wait, 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 seriously? And, and all we need to do is just believe in you to get this bread? Yeah, oh, okay, I want that instead. That sounds way better. Give us that bread always. Which shows us a few things when we look at all this together. First of all, yes, because he was able to perform this miracle at all, shows us that Jesus was operating in the power of God himself. And the plain teaching of the Bible is that the reason Jesus could do that is because he was God. But what it also shows us is that the reason Jesus had performed that miracle wasn't so much to just display his divine power as it was to reveal the kind of revolution he'd come to bring and the fulfillment that could only be found in him. Namely, a revolution against forces far more powerful and pervasive than Rome and satisfying hunger at a far deeper level, level than hunger alone, which, you know, if you are, are, are not a teenager, you know, you know, can return within 30 minutes after eating. Satisfy hunger eternally. Now hear me, that's not to say at all that Jesus didn't care about physical hunger that that didn't matter to him, that when they showed up looking for food, he's like, why do you guys keep talking about eating? I'm offering you this eternal bread. Who, who cares about eating another loaf of bread? He, he, it's not that he doesn't care about that, only that the miraculous provision of physical bread was meant to be a signpost pointing to something far greater. The miracle of multiplying the loaves was a signpost pointing to the true purpose of his coming. You see the same kind of thing actually in John 4, Jesus and the woman at the well. He's talking about drinking water from a, a physical well, but he's using that as a means to talk about water that he will offer. He says, you'll never thirst again with this water that I give. Same thing. And the woman replies the same way. Give me this water. 
And I know sometimes in Christian circles, this can turn into something of a debate. Uh, On the one side, you have people who want to really focus on meeting people's physical needs. They're just like, you know what, if people are starving, what good is having a Bible? Fair enough. And then you got people on the other side who want to focus more on people's spiritual hunger. And they say, what good is it if we're well-fed in this life if we spend an eternity separated from Christ? Fair enough. What, what, What this miraculous feeding and then subsequent explanation that Jesus is giving is showing us is that Jesus cares about both. He cares about both those things. And if Jesus cared about both, then as a church, we we should care about both as well. But the point at the end of the day is the same. Jesus' miracles, much more than raw displays of power, they were these signposts. Signposts pointing people to far more than they even knew to hope for and what he alone could provide. And I think that's where the clearest parallel between the revolutionary hopeful of Jesus' day and you and I today lies. I think that's the the clearest place where we can meet together because just like the people in our passage, we are often, if you think about this, we are often hyper-focused on the present, on like what's right in front of us, the immediate, and give almost no thought or at least no regular thought to the eternal. Very focused on the present, not always on the bigger picture and then on the eternal. I mean, some of you might be familiar with perhaps a a criticism sometimes put forward against Western medicine that says it just kind of focuses at times more on symptoms than on diseases, Uh, kind of focusing in on the immediate present, not the bigger picture. So, oh, you've got a headache? Here's an aspirin. And, And not asking the question of, well, why do you have a headache to begin with? In a similar vein to that, Jesus is here saying to the crowds, you're focused on getting your next meal from me alone. I want you to imagine instead a kingdom where hunger no longer exists. You're seeking me. You want a revolutionary leader to liberate you from Roman oppression for the next 30 to 40 years of life that maybe you have left. Imagine instead an eternal kingdom where no one is oppressed or subjugated again. And the needs and the desires are different to some degree, for sure, but Jesus says very much the same thing to you and I today. You, You want that relationship, that that career so bad. You you need that vacation, that physical appearance, that that status, that that amount of money in your bank account, all these things. Why? Well, very often because that's the immediate need right in front of you. It's the thing that's just kind of like right up in your face. But what Jesus is saying is, I want you to look beyond that immediate need if you can, because the misguided conclusion you've come to is that if you just had that, whatever that is, then you'd be free. Then you'd be satisfied. Then you'd be fulfilled. And yet, while never discounting those things or shaming us for desiring them, remember, Jesus cares about both. He invites you and he invites me to imagine an eternal kingdom found only in him where every single one of those desires can be fully met. And met not just for a little while, but met in a way that will never rust, will never fade or wear out. I mean, just to give you like one example of this, which you can then multiply yourself in your mind. Uh, Relationships. That's just kind of a simple one that we put in front of us. Most of us seek deep relationships with others. A spouse, friendships, whatever it is. We seek that, I believe, because we're made in the image and likeness of a relational God. But the moment that that relationship becomes the thing you need in order to be fulfilled, you've immediately given, uh, given in to the false advertising of... This is what's going to fulfill you. Because while relationships are fulfilling, they are. They're always limited 
by the fact of they involve people. <laughs> uh, people who will let you down. People who will fail you. People who stop loving you. You stop loving them. They're, you get bored. They die. There's all kinds of different things that limit relationships to the point where they can't ultimately fulfill you. But, now here's the key. When I find my fulfillment in Jesus first, I now stop looking to that thing which, which can't ultimately satisfy to fulfill me. And then I'm actually free to love, to pursue, to engage with that person in a way that doesn't either crush them under the weight of my expectation or disillusion and disappoint me when they fail to satisfy me, as relationships in the end always will. They are fulfilling, but they can't ultimately fulfill. That's the kind of fulfillment that Jesus is talking about. Okay, so that's miracles as signposts. Again, so much more than raw displays of power. Jesus' miracles, they point us towards a freedom and fulfillment in life found only in him and to a far deeper degree than we even know how to ask and imagine for. The last thing I want to look at together with you from our passage is the way that more than simply leading this unexpected revolution himself, Jesus also invites his followers, he invites you and I, into that revolution, into be, to be participants in the revolution alongside him. So let's look now, and lastly, at ministers of the miracle. And this is something that you see in our passage that's actually incredible when you think about it. I mean, it actually also sounds kind of like a super dumb idea at the same time, but also really incredible. So let's just look at it. We'll look at it for a minute and then just talk about it. So again, Jesus here is preaching and teaching and healing people in this expectant crowd out on the hill country. But then as we see in verse 15, look with me here. It's starting to get near the end of the day. So Jesus' disciples come to him, I love this, and they inform him, you know, in case he wasn't aware. It's getting late in the day. See what time it is? People are hungry. Not a lot of restaurants, actually any restaurants around here. And then, and then tell Jesus, don't, don't ask him, tell him to send the crowds away so that they can all go and get something to eat. Almost as if one commentator put it, they think Jesus is so absorbed with people's spiritual needs, he's failed to notice their natural ones. But as you see in verse 16, rather than responding like the absent-minded professor they seem to think he is, that Jesus is going to be like, oh goodness, thank you. I didn't realize, yes, please, go get something to eat. Instead, he responds this way, verse 16. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Almost as if he's just to say, oh, no, no, I haven't forgotten about people's physical hunger. I got a plan for that, too. It's, it's you. <laughs> you give them something to eat. And the exact response is very slightly in each of the gospel accounts, depending on which kind of disciple's response they're focusing on. But altogether, collectively, their response adds up to something like this. Yeah, that's nuts. No, uh, uh, we can't do that. That's impossible, Jesus. Just look at the size of the need around us compared to how little we have to work with. It's not possible. Can't do it. But now look here, look at verse 18, Jesus' response, and then 18 and following. Jesus says essentially this, just bring me what you have. Bring me what you have. And he takes the food, he blesses it, he breaks the loaves, and then his disciples hand out the food to the crowds, and they take it, and they eat, and all are satisfied. So if you didn't see it yet, the incredible thing is that rather than responding to their, uh, their kind of uh, request to Jesus indignantly, 
responding to their uh, unbelief indignantly, like, haven't you guys seen the stuff I can do? Or responding kind of proudly. Jesus just kind of rolling up his sleeves, being like, don't worry, I got this, guys, watch this. He, he doesn't respond in either of those ways. Instead, Jesus invites his followers to be fellow ministers of the miracle that he's about to perform alongside him. Which, if you think about it, again, well, cool, seems like a really dumb idea on Jesus' part. Because, first of all, does Jesus need the disciples' involvement for this miracle to happen? Like, are they going to have anything to do with multiplying fish and loaves? No. Um, can Jesus not feed the crowds if he doesn't have, you know, the, the wait staff to, to deliver the food? He could probably carry it out, right? But on the other side, could the disciples do something really dumb that could actually jeopardize the whole thing and mess it up? The likelihood is high. I mean, we, remember... Uh, what happens when people are bringing their kids to Jesus? They're, they're bringing children to Jesus to bless, and the disciples are like, no, no, sorry. They, they just completely messed it up as though, no, Jesus is too busy for that. So all the time they're messing stuff up. So that's why this is cool, but it seems dumb. But the incredible thing about Jesus, both then and today, is that although he has no need of our assistance, he invites us into the miraculous revolutionary work that he's accomplishing in our world. And I know it's crazy and it can feel so scary when just like facing that crowd of 5,000 men and, our, and their families, we, we look at what we're being called to compared with what we have to offer and we just feel like them. We feel like there's no way, we can't do it. And yet as we saw in our passage today, and I promise you right up until this very day, what Jesus will never ask you is, do you have enough? Do you have enough skill? Do you have enough ability, strength, money, courage, emotional stability to meet this need? He's never going to ask you that. All he will ask you are two simple questions. What do you have? Will you bring it to me? And as we plainly saw in every natural sense, the answer to that first question for Jesus' disciples was, we don't have enough. That's the answer. <laughs> But then here's the thing, because their answer to the second question, will you bring it to me, was yes. Jesus took what was not clearly enough, clearly not enough, and caused it to be more than enough in his hands. And I wonder, if Jesus were to physically walk into this place right now and ask you those same two questions, how do you feel like you'd respond? What do you have? Will you bring it to me? I know for some people that's too big and overwhelming a question in the moment. Do you need some time to think about it? That's fine. Take some time later today to kind of ponder what that would look like. But for those of you who've got a sense already, I'd invite you just to picture that conversation in your mind right now. What do you have that could be used in Jesus' kingdom to meet the needs of others? To do the miraculous work of God in the lives of others? I mean, I know that's a hard question to answer. First of all, because we hear that and we're like, okay, cool to meet the needs of others. What, what about my needs? Are you going to meet my needs too? For others, I imagine a lot of us, it's, it's a hard question to answer because we look at what we have to offer and we think, that's not nearly enough. This couldn't, you couldn't do anything with this. 
And then I know it's probably a smaller minority, but some of us are actually feel like we actually have a lot to offer. We think, Jesus, I'm so glad you asked, because I'm not sure you would have been able to do this miracle with what would I have to give you. All kinds of different responses, but however you respond, the thing to always remember is this. Jesus, he's inviting you into his revolutionary kingdom work. It's his work. To be ministers of the miracle, not miracle workers yourselves. And he's inviting you into that revolutionary work, not because he needs your help or your assistance, but because what he knows is this. You are actually the one who's going to be grown personally in your own faith as you watch Jesus do the impossible in the lives of others with that little that you had to bring. That's why he's inviting you into it. It's to grow you just as much in the midst of the process here. And because he's the one working the miracle, not you, you can just relax. You can, you can be certain. Again, he's never going to ask you, do you have enough? Do you have enough to meet that need? He's just going to ask you, what do you have? Will you bring it to me? Essentially, I mean, Jesus says, you know what? Bring me your not enough. Bring it to me. And just watch what I can do, both in the lives of others as well as in the life of the one who freely offers it. I trust what you've seen plainly this morning is that although, yeah, he, he, he is absolutely bringing a revolution, as so many people hoped, Jesus was bringing a very different kind of revolution than anyone expected, while at the same time being a better revolution than they even knew to hope for. So it was different, yes, but, but better than they even knew to ask for. It was also a revolution Jesus invited his followers to be a part of, rather than just to sit back passively and watch what he did. He invites us into his kingdom work. But something else that was unique about Jesus' revolution, and I want to close our time this morning considering this. As you study history, what you tend to come, what you tend to find very often is that in almost every revolution, it is a group of people dissatisfied very often by the abuse of power. They then take that power by force only to very often become abusers of power themselves. That's how it so often seems to work. And yet what's so different about Jesus is that although he's God, he actually has all the power already. Rather than use that to take power from us, to dominate us, or use his power to serve himself, instead, Jesus lays down his power to serve others. And in so doing, brings about true freedom, ultimate ultimate fulfillment to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. As Jesus himself later says explicitly to his disciples, first of all, John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's he's willingly surrendering power. He's the one doing it. It's not taken from him. Secondly, later on in Matthew's gospel, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A teaching that's actually pictured right here in Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. For what virtually every commentator I read pointed out was that the very same verbs you see being used to describe Jesus' feeding of the people, blessed, broke, gave, ate. They're all identical to the verbs used later to describe Jesus feeding his disciples the Last Supper. 
where we're told that after he had given thanks, blessed, Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Take, he offered it, and eat in remembrance of me, which means in the feeding of his people in the wilderness with miraculous bread like Moses, Jesus met a physical, natural need and all ate and were satisfied. But as we see in the Last Supper, Jesus would ultimately offer his own self for the feeding of many, satisfying our deepest desires of our hearts in a way we didn't even know to ask for. As Jesus later says, John 6, I am the bread of life. It's me. Not this is how you get the bread or, or here's the way to earn the bread that can do this by these, follow these steps. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread your fathers ate in the wilderness and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So may we today once more feed on him again, finding life and satisfaction in him that nothing else in this world can truly offer. And then, out of deep gratitude and thanksgiving, not duty, may we bring him what we have and watch him cause what we imagined could never be enough to become more than enough in the hands of our Savior. Amen.